As we continue to worship the Lord this morning, would you stand with me as we read God's Word? Turn in your Bibles to Malachi 2, 10 through 16. If you need a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. You can turn to page 545 as we read Malachi 2, 10 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, and who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not make but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Let's pray. Father, as we read these words, uh, we are sobered by the importance that you place on keeping promises. And Lord, we are thankful that you are a promise-keeping God, for without your covenant promise, your covenant faithfulness to us in Christ Jesus, none of us would be able to be saved. And yet, Lord, when we align ourselves with you, you desire that we be promise-keepers as well. May what we hear as you anoint our pastor with the message from your word deepen in our hearts our commitment to not deal treacherously. May you show where we are erring, and may we repent and return, knowing that your blood covers a multitude of our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's one couple that we trust for marriage advice, it's the couple who has been married longer than most of us have been alive. And Alice and Del Rocky fit the bell. A year ago, this last February, the Olathe, Kansas couple were recognized as the longest married couple in America after 81 years of marriage. We've had a wonderful life, Dell told the Kansas City Star when asked about their marriage. How did he propose? I asked her if she had any money. He laughed. <laughs> the couple paid $2 for the marriage license when they wed in 1933 in Nebraska. Years later, Alice summed up the secret of their 81 years of marriage to the star. I always let him have my way. (laughs) And then she chuckled. Too bad the people in Malachi's day didn't have Alice's secret to a lasting marriage. But they did have the Word of God, which is the supreme authority on marriage then and even now today. The problem was the people had strayed from God's Word. And consequently, the people then strayed from God's covenant in their marriages. Given the priest's failure to shepherd the people by by teaching the people God's Word, which is what we focused on last Sunday, It's not surprising then that the people of God were now living far from God, especially in the area of their marriages. However, the priest's failure did not excuse the people from their responsibility. And so Malachi now, 
He shifts his attention from the priest to all of the people of God here. And he's confronting them with a tragedy. He's confronting them with the tragedy of dealing treacherously with one another and with God and even in their marriages. And so I want to bring to you just the main point, the big idea, if you will, and and give it to you up front, and that is this, a departure from God's Word, as we saw last Sunday. A departure from the Word of God leads to the tragedy of dealing treacherously in our relationships with one another and with God. Anytime the people of God begin to depart from the Word of God, it will have an impact on our relationships horizontally and then vertically. That impact then seeps into the home. It seeps into the family and into marriages. This phrase, dealing treacherously, is the key theme in this section of verses here. In fact, this phrase, you may have noticed when Pastor Chris read it for us, it's repeated five times in these verses here. And so what does it mean? Dealing treacherously uh, may be translated in some of your Bibles there as breaking faith. And it means to betray a trust or to be unfaithful. It's the idea of, of dealing deceitfully or acting unfaithfully. And so dealing treacherously is the opposite then of acting faithfully with one another in our relationships and also in our relationship with God and, and even in our marriages. In the eyes of God, this, Malachi says, is a tragedy. Or in the words of Malachi, he calls it an abomination to the Lord. Malachi begins this passage here with a, with a series of questions in verse 10. Look at it again with me. He says, have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? And if that is true, and they're rhetorical questions, then the answer is yes, then why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? In other words, Malachi comes and he confronts the people and he asks them, hey, listen, if God has been so faithful with us, why have we been so faithless with each other in God's family? There was widespread deceit, even dishonesty among the people of God in Malachi's day. The people were not keeping their word. Trusts were being broken, and God rebukes their treacherous treatment of each other. It's a tragedy when God's people deal treacherously with one another, especially those people that are in the covenant community of God's family. However, Malachi's questions that he asks here in verse 10, these three questions, it makes it clear that dealing treacherously with with one another entails dealing treacherously with our Heavenly Father. You see, the unity of God's people came from the fact that they had one God who created them, one Father who had chosen them. The people of God now are called to reflect the very character of God. And because God is always, always, always faithful to His people, God calls His people then and now to be faithful to Him and to be faithful to one another. Therefore, whenever we deal treacherously with one another, we are dealing treacherously with God. And we profane His covenant that was first established through Abraham, and now it is established through Jesus Christ for us today. And we profane this covenant. And so Malachi's message to us this morning, folks, it can hardly be any more relevant or more needed. Malachi starts with the tragedy of dealing treacherously in our relationships with one another and with God. And he does so to get the people's attention. It came as a shock to them. They weren't expecting this. In fact, you may have noticed they haven't been expecting a whole lot in this book so far when they've been confronted. And once Malachi has their attention, 
he begins to narrow the focus to the tragedy now dealing treacherously in the area of marriage. You see, the Israelite men were marrying unbelieving women who worshipped false gods. And these men were divorcing their wives so they could marry these unbelieving women. Evidently, a good number of Israelite men were divorcing their elderly Jewish wives in order to marry younger women from surrounding nations. And Malachi's point is that the men who were guilty of dealing treacherously with their wives would have been quick to insist that, hey, their actions affected nobody else. What I do with my wife is between me and my wife. What does that matter to you? How does that impact all the people of God. How does that matter to God? But Malachi would have none of it. The people were not only in covenant with each other, but also with God Himself. Therefore, every act of treacherousy against one another is an act of treacherous, treachery against God. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, let me tell you, and I can't say this enough, as believers in Christ, our Heavenly Father, God Almighty, listen, He cares about the life you live, and He cares about the legacy you leave behind. God has something to say this morning to all of us. God has something to say to those who are single here this morning. And God also has something to say to those of us who are married. Which means God has something to say to, well, that's everyone here. And yet, God is not saying everything there is to say about marriage and divorce here in this passage of Malachi. Which means that leaves a hundred unanswered questions that you may have about marriage and divorce. Which we do not have time to answer all those questions. So my goal is not to try to answer every question that we may have about this particular topic. My goal is for us to look at the text. And my goal is to make application out of this text in the area of marriage and divorce. Don't deal treacherously, Malachi tells us. He's a messenger of God, and so really it's God's message to God's people then as it is God's message to us today. And the message is clear. Don't deal treacherously in the area of marriage. Specifically, two areas. And the first is this, by marrying an unbeliever. Don't deal treacherously by marrying an unbeliever. Basically, as we've already said, the men of God were marrying the daughters of a foreign god. And God calls this an abomination. Why is that? Well, notice what it says in verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. And then he says exactly how. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. You see, the primary issue here is that the women, the men were marrying, did not love God. Did they not trust God? They did not follow the one true God of Israel. She was the, not the daughter of the true God. God. She was the daughter of a foreign God. This was an abomination that profaned God's holiness. This is the tragedy of believers marrying unbelievers. Let me just summarize it. If you want to follow along in your notes, you're welcome to. The tragedy here is basically that a spiritually mixed marriage profanes the holiness of God. That's the essence of what Malachi is getting to. That's the heart of it here. A spiritually mixed marriage profanes God's holiness. You see, Israel's covenant relationship with God meant that he was their God and they were his people. That's the covenant that God made with his people through Abraham. And to safeguard that covenant, that relationship, God commanded His people, the nation of Israel, not to intermarry with the surrounding nations who worshipped other gods. False gods. Why is that? Because it's an abomination. It's detestable to God. And it profanes His holiness, or what Malachi calls the Lord's holy institution. 
Now, this holy institution was God's covenant relationship with his people whom he loved, whom he called to be holy because he is holy. And that relationship was now being contaminated by mixed marriages with unbelievers. And God says that those who do this are basically asking God to turn his back on them. We see that in verse 12. Look what it says. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, and who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now, let me just stop and say, if all this talk about not marrying an unbeliever seems way too restricting to you, seems way too archaic in the day in which we live in our culture, and if this seems hard for you to understand, hard for you to comprehend how, how God could limit me in such a way. Well, let me explain God's warning against spiritually mixed marriages. Notice this. Please hear this. It's not an issue of discrimination against unbelievers. Rather, it's an issue of protection for believers from idolatry. And so please, please hear me. The issue was not discrimination against foreign women. Rather, the issue was that these foreign women were daughters or followers of a foreign God. God is holy. We start with that. And this is the God who has saved us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ. God is holy, and He calls us to be holy. And to be holy means to live fully devoted to the Lord. It means to share God's values, to obey God's will, to trust God's promises, to live by God's Word. And so that is why God tells His people. You go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, and He tells them, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or to take their daughters for your sons. And then he tells us why. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Now, God, God is not prohibiting racially mixed marriages. But he is warning against spiritually mixed marriages. And God's warning here, as all of God's warnings, are for our own protection from falling into idolatry from the influence of an unbelieving spouse. Which means that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, you are wise. Oh, I cannot say this enough. You are wise then to heed God's principle that he then gives us later through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And although the context there is not about marriage, the principle holds true in all our relationships and especially for our marriage relationships when Paul writes, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, we are the temple of the living God. You see, here's the problem. The problem with marrying an unbeliever when you are a believer in Jesus Christ isn't merely that they are outside of God's covenant family. The problem is, folks, they have a completely different worldview than you do. A worldview that is different from which they view life. An unbeliever views the world differently than a believer does. Or at least, believers should view the world differently than unbelievers. You see, believers view the world through the lens of God's Word. An unbeliever does not look through that same lens. They look through a humanistic lens. They look through their own lens. What seems logical to them, what makes sense to them, they look through our cultural lens. 
and they make decisions based on that. Believers, we have a framework based on Jesus Christ. And this framework shapes how we live, how we make decisions, how we spend our time and money. It shapes the way we raise our kids. It shapes the way we interact with people. The way we respond to problems in life. The way we respond to such things as world events, national events, even the election coming up. It shapes the way we respond to everything in life here on this earth. And so to unite oneself in marriage with someone who has a contradictory worldview, oh, that creates a tremendous amount of tension in the marriage relationship. That also creates a tremendous temptation to abandon the one true God for worldly, unbiblical pursuits. This was true for God's people in the Old Testament. And this is still true for God's people in the New Testament today. Now, please don't hear more than what God is saying in these verses and not saying in these verses. God is not saying that if you're married to an unbelieving spouse here this morning, that it's impossible for he or she to become a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ. Amen? It is possible through the power of the gospel. It is possible for unbelieving spouses to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you're married here this morning to an unbelieving spouse, then I want to encourage you, pray fervently, pray diligently for their salvation and live fully devoted to the Lord as a testimony, as a picture of Christ's grace at work in your life to your unbelieving spouse. Which brings us to another thing that God is not saying if you're married to an unbelieving spouse, that you should get out of that relationship. No! On the contrary, the Apostle Paul encouraged the believer to stay married in order to win, by the grace of God, through your testimony, win the unbelieving spouse to Jesus Christ. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Number three, God is saying that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then don't deal treacherously, though, by marrying an unbeliever. John Piper sums it up well when he says, listen to these words. He says, if the choice of a marriage partner is still before you, settle it in your mind right now, never to marry anyone that does not love the Lord Jesus with all his or her heart, mind, and soul. Teenagers, you that are sitting over here in the middle, if you are single here this morning, whether you are a teenager, whether you're in your 20s or 30s, or whether you're older than that, please hear me. It's never too late especially as a teenager, to settle this in your mind, in your heart now, and to make that a conviction of yours that I will not, by the grace of God, marry an unbeliever as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I would warn that if you don't settle this in your heart and mind, if this does not become a conviction of yours, then chances are you will settle in your marriage when God wants to give you his best. And let me tell you, after 20 years of ministry, I have seen single women, single men settle for less than God's best in their marriage and live to regret it. Settle it as a conviction before you settle it or you settle in your marriage. So what's going on here? The second lesson in the area of marriage is that what you see here in Malachi is this. Number two, don't deal treacherously by divorcing your spouse. 
The first lesson is don't deal treacherously by marrying an unbeliever. The second lesson is don't deal treacherously by divorcing your spouse. And what we see next in this passage of Scripture here is the sad, sad account of Israelite men weeping at the altar. Look at it in verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he, that is God, does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Basically, here's the picture. These Israelite men were going to the altar with tears streaming down their cheeks, only to have their offerings rejected by the Lord. And their response was to weep and cry and groan and moan over it. But God was not impressed with their weeping and crying. So what's up with this? What's going on here? Well, God did not receive their offerings because these men offered him, how we said it a few weeks ago, worthless worship. They came to the altar as if everything was hunky-dory in their lives at home. They came to the altar, in other words, as hypocrites, pretending everything was just fine in their marriages, in their home life. All the while, what were they doing? They're dealing treacherously by divorcing their wives in order to marry younger pagan foreign women. And yet, they have the audacity, to, when God confronts them, to ask God, what's up? What are you doing? Look at it in verse 14. For what reason? And Malachi answers, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now, marriage. Let's talk about that for a few minutes here. Marriage is not simply a social arrangement that is constructed by our government. Marriage is a covenant that is designed by God himself. This is why divorcing your spouse in the eyes of God is such a tragedy. Look at this in your notes. A broken marriage destroys the covenant of marriage. Malachi, what he does now is he takes these Israelite men and he takes them back to the marriage of their youth. And he reminds them, hey, your marriage is a covenant that God witnessed. And so it's a marriage that is signed and sealed in heaven to agree to live together as a man and a wife is a covenant commitment. It's not just a formalized union. It's not just a formalized agreement that our government sanctions or authorizes. No, it is so much more than that. It's a covenant. In fact, that's what our wedding vows are all about. And God says that he is the witness of this covenant that is made here on earth and is signed in heaven and sealed in heaven. And when God stands as a witness to the covenant promises of marriage, it becomes more than just a formalized human agreement or contract. God is not some passive bystander at a wedding ceremony. He's an active participant in that ceremony. In effect, God says, and he's telling these Israelite men this, hey, I have seen this. I confirm it, and I record it in heaven, and I bestow upon this marriage between a man and a woman the dignity of being a picture or an image of Christ's covenant with his bride, the church. Therefore, to dissolve a marriage is to break a sacred covenant between a man and a wife, and most of all, between a holy God himself. So let's, let's ask a question here. What does God think about marriage? And what does God think about divorce? Well, notice this in your notes. God loves marriage. God loves marriage. Thus, God hates divorce. Now, I think it's, it's an understatement to say that God loves marriage. After all, God gave us marriage as a 
fabulous, wonderful gift to all of humanity. Are you thankful for the gift of marriage? Amen. In fact, God tells us, you go back to the very first marriage, you go back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden there with Adam and Eve, and he tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so God created marriage, he designed marriage, and marriage provides a helping partnership, and it makes a man and a wife one flesh. Good marriages, they bring great blessing. They bring great blessing to, a, to husbands and wives, to any children who are born in the marriage, to the extended family, to the local community, and to the society as a whole. Marriage is a great gift from God Himself to humanity. And it is to be received with praise and thanksgiving. And it should be cherished and honored by all of humanity. And because God loves marriage, God hates Divorce. For anyone who has been through a divorce, or anyone who has had close friends or family go through a divorce, you understand why. Perhaps your parents divorced while you were a child or a teenager, or perhaps they divorced when you became an adult. It doesn't matter, divorce hurts. Divorce brings pain. It brings pain to the ones who are divorcing. It brings pain to that family. It brings pain to the children, to the extended family, and so forth. And yet today, we live in a world where it's easier to annul a marriage covenant than a 12-month lease on an apartment. That's the culture in which we live today. In our culture today, many, many see divorce as a, simply a, a positive solution to a troubled marriage, as a way out of that. But Harvard psychologist Armand Nikolai concluded, divorce is not a solution, but simply an exchange of problems. Novelist Pat Conroy said of his own marriage breakup, each divorce is the death of a small civilization. One woman wrote after her own divorce, our divorce has been the most painful, horrid, ulcer-producing, agonizing event you can imagine. I wish I could put on this piece of paper for all the world to see a picture of what divorce feels like. Maybe my picture would stop people before it's too late. So it should not be surprising to us that Malachi now declares here in verse 16, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment in violence, says the Lord of hosts. Now, please hear me. Please hear what Malachi is saying and not saying. Malachi does not say that God hates divorced people. Or that divorce is the unpardonable sin. Malachi is not saying that. And God certainly does not hate those Israelite women who have been so wantonly discarded by their husbands. It's because God wanted to protect women from being treated that way that he declared, I hate divorce. God hates divorce because he hates its destruction on the family, on the home, on society, and on the church at large. God defends marriage then by speaking against those that would destroy what he gave as a good gift to humanity. And in the context here of Malachi, the whole purpose of this statement by God that I hate divorce is to stop any Israelite man who is thinking about divorcing his wife in order to marry a foreign woman who serves false gods. God's wanting to stop that in dead in the tracks. And so when God tells us what he hates, listen, it's in order to warn us away from its destructive behavior. It's for our benefit and for His glory. For example, God, as we've already seen, He hates worthless worship. When people who offer it are living half-hearted instead of fully devoted. Similarly, because God loves justice, as we're going to see next Sunday, God hates injustice. 
so too God hates the planning of evil. He hates lies. He hates deceptions. He hates false promises. He hates murder. He hates sin. God hates the things that harm His people. And God hates the actions that we do that bring harm to His people. So that's what God thinks about marriage and about divorce. But what now should we think about marriage and divorce. I would suggest, I would exhort, that we should think what God thinks. Amen? Especially since He is our majestic Father and we are His beloved children. God values marriage, so should we. God hates divorce, and so we should, we should grieve the premature end of marriages. And we should hate the kind of divorce found here in Malachi, in which wives were being discarded simply because husbands wanted to marry younger women. At the same time, in the Old Testament, divorce was permitted in some limited circumstances. You can read this in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. In the New Testament, Jesus himself said that this provision of divorce that was allowed in limited circumstances in the Old Testament, Jesus comes in the Gospels and he tells us that this provision was in place because of the hardness of people's hearts. But Jesus also spoke of the, the priority of resisting divorce and staying married. He says this both in Matthew and in Mark. Notice it here in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, where Jesus says, but from the beginning of the creation, and so Jesus goes all the way back to God's creation and design of marriage, and he affirms that God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore... In other words, based on what God did at creation, which transcends all cultures for all times, Jesus now says, therefore, what God has joined together, do not let any man separate. Jesus' priority was to preserve marriages and to limit unnecessary and trivial divorces. However, Jesus did allow the possibility of divorce for adultery. You can read that in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. The Apostle Paul also allowed the possibility of divorce for abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, such as when a believer is married to an unbeliever, and that unbeliever wants to abandon the marriage or end the marriage, and they want to walk out. And Paul says, listen, let him go. Some people also view abuse as grounds for divorce. And while such a situation is horrific, the Bible does not explicitly state abuse as grounds for divorce. However, this does not mean anyone in an abusive situation in a marriage must stay in that situation and put themselves and or their children in emotional, physical, and sexual danger. And so if you are in that situation here this morning, then my counsel to you is to separate from that person. Get out of the situation as fast as you can. Flee to safety, and if need be, you call the legal authorities. Here's the point. Marriage should be honored by all, most of all, the children of God, the family of God, followers of Jesus Christ. And marriage partners should be encouraged to stay married. And so, as the family of God, those one another's, man, when we see a couple that's, that's flirting in danger, we should not encourage divorce. We should come alongside and encourage them. Seek help. Get counsel. Man, you do everything you can to stay together. Work it out instead of walking out. Let me help you. Let me pray for you. We encourage that. Why? Because Jesus pre preserves marriage. And he limits unnecessary, trivial divorces. Let me give you two other reasons why here. God loves marriage and hates divorce. God's design, notice this in your notes, 
God's design of marriage is one man and one woman joined together in a covenant relationship for a lifetime. Malachi, notice these verses here, 14 and 15, says, Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Man, that is beautiful language there. That is tender language of a relationship between a husband and wife. But he did not make them one, having the remnant of the Spirit. An older couple was discussing their upcoming 50th anniversary in the grocery checkout line, and when the young cashier interjected, man, I can't imagine being married to the same man for 50 years. To which the wife wisely replied, well, honey, don't get married until you can. Why? Because marriage is a covenant relationship that should last a lifetime. Listen, till death do us part is not just some, some cliche we say at our wedding ceremony. That is the mantra in which we live by. This is why marriage is rooted in the rock of covenantal commitment, not in the sand of emotional happiness. You see, we live in a culture where people think, I'll get married and I'll be happy. And when it doesn't make them happy, spouses end their marriage for the reason, I just want to be happy. But they're not going to be happy. Because if you're not happy before marriage, you will not be happy in marriage. And you will not be happy after marriage. Why? Because God wants us to be holy. And what we fail to understand, even as believers in Jesus Christ, is that oftentimes, if not all times, happiness is found on the other side of holiness. And happiness is never found at the price of holiness. So don't be another foolish person who walks out on their marriage saying, I just want to be happy. God wants me to be happy. No, God wants you to be holy first and foremost. And so whether you're remarried here this morning, whether you're married for the first time or you're about to be married, listen, settle it in your own heart now that you will stay together to the end. Second of all, God's purpose in marriage is to reproduce a godly legacy for His glory. Malachi 2.15 says this about God. He seeks godly offspring or godly children. You see, God's purpose was to produce a, a great and godly nation from the descendants of Father Abraham, the nation of Israel. Therefore, to marry someone who was a worshiper of false gods would undermine and endanger God's purpose for that nation. And we will see in the weeks to come, though, God will keep His promises to the nation of Israel. Nothing can thwart His purposes for the nation of Israel. But now this purpose, praise the Lord, listen, it is extended to all the peoples of the world who are part of God's family through Jesus Christ. Which means... That a godly legacy starts with you. It starts with each of us here today. And if you're thinking, man, I don't have a godly legacy. My parents were, they didn't take me to church. They didn't tell me anything about Jesus Christ. They didn't do anything. Like, Listen, that's why you don't look to the past on your godly legacy. You look to you right now. God, from this day forward, I'm starting it. It starts with you today giving yourself to the Lord and living fully devoted to the Lord. You see, we live in a day when it's all about having a good time. But God is all about leaving a godly legacy. We tend to think about what we're going to do on the weekend, but God wants us to think about how we're going to impact the next generation for Jesus Christ, beginning with our own children first, and then our grandchildren, and so forth and so on. Why? Because God knows that a godly legacy beats a good time every time. And our world is all about having a good time and not worrying about tomorrow. But God's children, we think about the future. We think about what we're leaving behind. And God seeks godly 
offspring, a godly legacy. And if you're one who can't have children as a couple, that doesn't hinder you from getting in on what God wants because spiritually now, you can still leave a godly legacy. You, most of you know Jeff and Christy Brown cannot have kids, and yet you know where they're serving? They're leaving a godly legacy behind over there next door serving your kids. God also knows, though, you got to love our God. He knows his people, don't he? Because he knows our propensity to deal treacherously in this very area of marriage. And so what God does, he gives us a remedy for. I love that. Look at this. The remedy for dealing treacherously is to simply take heed. It's to take heed to your spirit to make sure your heart is right with God. Twice, Malachi urges the people to take heed or in other words, to watch carefully so that they don't deal treacherously. You see, unfaithfulness, what Malachi's getting at here with this remedy is he knows that unfaithfulness, it's always rooted in the heart. Unfaithfulness flows from a heart that is not right with God. And if our hearts are not right with God, there's only one way to get them right, and that is to repent of our sin and to ask Jesus Christ for his forgiveness and to receive it and receive his cleansing as well and to be reconciled back to our Heavenly Father. And so wherever you are in your relationships here this morning, and by the way, none of us are where we should be, remember these words in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, let me, let me close with this. If I may, and if you will allow me to give a personal illustration. In no way, Am I pretending that any of this is easy? Because let's, let's be honest, it's not, is it? Marriage, man, it is a whole lot of work. By God's grace, Darla and I, who is sitting right here, she always does, we will celebrate 25 years of marriage this May. And I don't say that to boast. I say that to let you guys know that some days are fantastic, and some days are mighty tough. They're not so good. I love Darla with all my heart, and sometimes she drives me crazy. If you want to hear some stories, talk to me afterwards. <laughs> and Darla loves me with all her heart, and I drive her crazy way more often than she drives me crazy. In fact, just this last weekend, last Saturday, we had a disagreement. And you, you know disagreement's always code for fight. <laughs> what started out as a beautiful, leisurely, fun Saturday afternoon walk with the dogs ended with each of us walking home alone, ready to kill each other. I kid you not. Someone once asked Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, have you ever thought about divorcing Billy? And being such an honest woman, she said, I've never really thought about divorcing Billy, but I've thought about killing him. <laughs> that was us a week ago Saturday. We wanted to kill each other. <laughs> if you're wondering, well, what stopped you? <laughs> it's simple. We value our marriage more then we value our selfishness. Because God loves marriage and hates divorce, it means we work through our problems, and we struggle working through those problems instead of walking out of those problems and walking out of the marriage. It means we, we humble ourselves instead of digging our heels in and demanding, I'm right on this situation. 
It means we take ownership of the hurt that we have caused each other instead of blaming each other. It means we forgive each other instead of holding a grudge, which only turns to resentment and bitterness. And believe me, we, my wife and I, we do not, we do not do this perfectly. Ask my boys. Jack was playing basketball outside in the driveway with a friend. And he could hear the argument going on. His friends. It was not pretty. And we don't do this in our own strength, but we do this through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This, this is the power of Jesus Christ in a marriage. Jesus died for our sins, so we don't need to kill our marriages. And Jesus rose again to give us new life so that we have His power to give grace and to give forgiveness to our spouses. As Rick Warren says, a successful marriage is a great union between two forgivers. So whether you're single, whether you're married, take heed to your spirit daily. And don't deal treacherously, but instead you commit to live faithfully in your relationship first and foremost to the Lord God Almighty, and then with one another, and then in your marriage. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and there are, there are many marriages represented here this morning. And there are some here whose marriages are really struggling and and perhaps they're even wondering how they're going to make it and if it's really worth staying in it. And so, Lord, I pray and I ask, I beg that you would encourage them and strengthen them with your truth and your grace and help them to see the hope that is in Jesus Christ and through your power they would live faithfully in their marriages. Father, there are also a number of single people here. And I pray they would settle in their hearts to live fully devoted to you by not marrying an unbeliever. And Father, there are some here who have experienced the pain of divorce. And I pray they will find healing in the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. And for those who have remarried, thank you for giving them the gift of marriage. And may their marriage be a picture of your faithfulness to them. And most of all, Lord, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place for our sins so that we could receive forgiveness of sins and the power to live fully devoted to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With your heads bowed, the praise team's going to sing. And here's how I'm asking you to respond. And if you're married here this morning right where you're seated, or you can even come to this altar. Just get up out of your seat if you so choose. You recommit in your heart through prayer, you're going to stay married. You're going to live fully devoted to the Lord and be faithful in your relationship with your spouse. If you're single here this morning, I would ask you to commit to the Lord here this morning that you're not going to marry an unbeliever. And if you are married to an unbeliever, I would encourage you to pray. Use this time to pray for your spouse to know Jesus and to use you specifically as a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ.